Hi everyone, this is Eugene, and before I turn it over to Paul, I just wanted to say that this episode is among my favorites that we've done in this project so far, and that's because I've wanted to cover the issue of family separation and slavery since we've started this project, you know, over a year ago, and finally we've been able to get an incredible professor, Professor Denine Brown, who comprehensively brings us through 400 years of slavery and its relationship with family separation. And she does it in a way that really naturally brings us to the present and kind of discusses and puts into context that what this might mean for our you know, understanding of the murder of George Floyd and the ongoing protests today. So yeah, it's really hard for me to believe that the protests were already a year ago when I spoke with E.J. Joseph on an earlier episode on this podcast about his efforts in organizing protests in LA. And at that time, I think that we were both just kind of talking while figuring things out and kind of trying to process everything. And now a year later, it's incredible to think that history has been rewritten in so many ways, even if it's hard to stop and kind of like realize that. A year ago, nobody really knew about the Tulsa massacre. Nobody was really reading books on racism to the extent that, you know, today uh, all the bestseller lists have books on racism and a documentary is being made on the Tulsa massacre, which Professor Brown is working on. So on a personal level, you know, I wanted to start this project if you listen to the pilot episode, because I didn't come to understand the importance of my own ethnic history until much later in life. And then to think that even American history, which is supposed to be, you know, this stable institution, I guess, um, is constantly being rediscovered and rewritten and wrestled with to this day is really, I want to say interesting, but also very, very, you know, important, like it has a lot of implications on actual lives. So Professor Brown puts this very well when she says that we need to seek out books and movies about racism and our actual history as if we were searching for water in a desert. And I thought that's such a great way to kind of put it because she says that, you know, it's not only our own lives that depend on it, but also the lives of others. So I hope that this episode can be something of a drop of water, if that's not too cheesy to say. And But this episode really was a gift for me in many different ways. So I hope that it will be for you as well. So with that, here's Paul and Professor Deneen Brown. Hey everyone, this is Paul with the Divided Families podcast, and today I'm super honored to be in conversation and really be able to be educated by award-winning journalist Deneen Brown, who has been a staff writer at the Washington Post for more than 35 years, and she is currently also an associate professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. So Professor Brown, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and literally your Zoom bandwidth to be able to be on this program today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I was just so moved and inspired, really, and shocked. I think those are the emotions that I was feeling after an article that I discovered that you wrote on America's cruel history of separating children from their parents from the Washington Post in May 2018. And that's how I discovered your work initially. Um, And I hope to really center today's conversation about the system of slavery in the United States and its impact on families, especially Black American families in this country. But first, I'm wondering if we could take a step back and if you would be able to share a bit about your own childhood and your family growing up and perhaps how you became interested in in covering the history and legacy of slavery and these issues. Thank you so much. Yes. So I am a descendant of 
enslaved Black people in this country. My ancestors, both paternal and maternal side, were enslaved in this horrible institution of slavery, which, as many listeners know, began around 1619 when the first ships arrived on what is now the shores of Virginia in 1619 with what John Rolfe called 20 and odd Negroes. So yes, this horrible institution of slavery is part of my family tree. I was born in the United States. I was born in Oklahoma. I grew up partly in Oklahoma and then in Kansas. I was part of the school integration process, which as a child, I really didn't know that I was part of this huge legal battle in U.S. history. When I was in first grade, my parents told me that I would get on a bus, a school bus, and I'd be going to a new school. And I think I was six or seven, and I got on a bus, you know, as children do, very obedient to their parents, not aware of the political implications or the political arguments and debates swirling around us as children. So I get on a bus. I did not know I'm integrating schools, but I land in a school that is majority white after having spent kindergarten and first grade in a majority black school in my neighborhood, which also was majority black. That was all that I knew as a child. But what I often say to people is, I look back and I think my parents were so brilliant at the time. They didn't tell me anything about how the white majority of people in the country looked down on Black people. I mean, they never explained that to me. My mom would just say, Nini, which is what she calls me, you're beautiful, you're smart, you can do anything. And as I said, they put me on the bus I end up in this school that's pretty much all white. And I just like telling the story. I was very smart. I was actually tested into the gifted and talented and creative program. I had a really high IQ. I was just a curious child, right? Who lands in the school where there are a lot of kids who don't look like me, but I don't see that as an issue. So one day the teacher assigns a class monitor for snack time. We're having snack, I think, milk and graham crackers. And there's a young white girl who is assigned to be the class monitor to check everyone's hands to see whether they're clean for snack time. So she checks everyone's hands and then she gets to me and she looks down and she says, I can't tell whether your hands are clean or dirty because they're all brown. And instead of internalizing that moment as, oh my God, you know, I'm subjected to this cruel institution of racism, I thought, well, what in the heck is wrong with you? Of course my hands are clean. So it was like, what is your problem? So I love telling that story because it has helped frame my thinking about racism As I've grown older and just charged through elementary school, middle school, high school, and majority white high schools, 
on the debate team, honor society, first blackhead cheerleader. I went an academic scholarship to college. I also went an art scholarship to college. I take the academic scholarship. I land on campus at our state institution and just kind of charge through campus with one of the highest GPAs on campus. Each time I confront racism in that journey, my thinking has always been, well, what in the heck is wrong with this person? Of course I'm smart, you know, of course I'm beautiful. Why is that person subjecting hatred upon me? And that continues to be my frame of reference when it comes to racism in this country. What is wrong with people? Why is it that people hate others because of the color of their skin? Wow. First off, thank you so much for sharing that story. And I think on a personal note, I admire that kind of self-assurance and confidence. And I, I guess just reason that you had at such a young age, because as somebody who, you know, it it was a different kind of racism and uh, I guess more microaggressions that I experienced growing up, you know, a lot of Asian Americans and Asian immigrants have what people call a lunchbox moment where people are judging your, uh, what you bring for lunch. But I think for me, I really internalized that message, which led to a lot of self-loathing and perpetuating that cycle of socialization. So it's it's really inspiring for me to hear that story. And what you mentioned about cheerleading and debate and the art scholarship was not included in your official bio. So that's really awesome to hear about that as well. One thing that you mentioned is that correctly, I think, too, is that a lot of listeners, young people in the U.S., are aware of slavery as an institution in the history of the U.S. But I'm wondering, too, you know, you mentioned you spent time in your childhood in Oklahoma, and I know you have been working on a documentary with National Geographic on the Tulsa Massacre in 1921. But I'm wondering if there's anything that you think is overlooked or not addressed fully when it comes to education and awareness in American society about slavery or the legacy of slavery? In my research and in my reporting, I have found that our textbooks were deliberately rewritten to reframe the history of enslavement in this country. After the Civil War, there comes a period called Reconstruction, and then there's a period called Jim Crow. During Jim Crow, there are a number of racial terror lynchings and massacres that occur in this country that many people don't know about. But in the same time, you have a committee called the United Daughters of the Confederacy who set out to reshape the history, literally rewriting the history of the country from the Confederate viewpoint. This is the period when you the country starts uh, getting these Confederate monuments that are erected across the country. This committee of women also sets out to write textbooks, approve textbooks. And in the textbooks, they're telling the story that the Civil War was fought over states' rights, 
that I tried to paint the picture that the enslaved Black people were just happy and with their state and, and enslavement. So literally, they're rewriting history, and also they are leaving out big chunks of history in the textbooks. Like we know now that many people, even people who grew up in Tulsa and Oklahoma, knew nothing of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. Those massacres were literally left out of textbooks. The lynchings were literally left out of textbooks. Oftentimes the racist policies implemented against Black people and people from Asia and people from South and Central America, that was left out of textbooks. So much of the education in this country was sanitized. And I'll just give you a story where I'm growing up, as I told you, sent to a majority white schools. And I was just a curious child, really curious student reading these textbooks and thinking, okay, this kind of doesn't make sense. You know, what happened? You know, what happened to the enslaved Black people after the Civil War? And I remember asking my AP history teacher about research on what happened to those enslaved Black people when slavery ends. And I remember her her response was just very tippet. It's as though, you know, Deneen, that's not a really good subject or topic to research. And she did not encourage me to research that topic. So your initial question in this interview was, how did I become interested in this topic? It's always been, the best answer is, it comes from this innate curiosity about what happened to my people. I call my people, my ancestors in this country. Despite what was written in my textbooks, I knew that slavery was a cruel institution. I knew from my own research of looking at the scarred backs of Black men in the photos from the whippings that slavery was a cruel institution. And I knew almost innately that every human being wants freedom. So even as a child, I'm challenging the textbooks. I'm challenging the lessons that are taught to us. I'm sitting in the back of the classroom, raising my hand each time, asking questions of teachers who either, I'm not going to say they didn't know, or they did not encourage me to research these topics. So in summary, children across the United States, for the most part, have not been educated well about the history of slavery. And that was deliberate. It's clear, as you mentioned, that there's so much that is not addressed and there's so much that's overlooked when it comes to education about slavery in the U.S. And I was really shocked to see your article. It describes um, an ad, a uh, stop the runaway ad from Andrew Jackson, who was the seventh president of the U.S., and, you know, is depicted on the $20 bill. So I think pieces of history like that are often um, overlooked in place of other narratives. But I'm wondering, you know, the theme of this podcast is about connecting stories of family separation. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand family separation in the context of slavery. Is there an example of a specific 
case or a story about how families were separated as a result of the institution? Yeah, um, I'll just answer your question this way. When the Smithsonian's African-American Museum History and Culture opened in 2018, I visited the museum and as you know, or your viewers may know or may not know, depending on whether they've gone to the museum, it is a powerful, powerful museum. Its collections and exhibits are just, it just leaves you wrenched as you make your way through the museum. As you enter the museum, you descend the escalator and the way they've created the exhibits is you begin your tour in the museum and the belly of a reconstructed slave ship that's making its way across the Atlantic and the audio in this exhibit, you hear the screams and the howls of these enslaved Africans, the weeping of mothers, fathers. You experience the true despair the way it was designed according to the curators, they say that this exhibit was designed intentionally to make people feel uncomfortable. It's crowded, it's dark, it's just a horrible place to be. So you feel that. Then coming out of that exhibit, you make your way through the history of enslavement in this country. So I remember stopping at an exhibit which depicted a black woman on a slave auction block and she's crying out and a white man is whipping her as she reaches for a baby that is being ripped from her arms. And the caption on this exhibit explained that the more she cried, the more the white man whipped her back. This exhibit was called The Weeping Time and So I remember just pausing for a long time, just looking at this picture of this woman who was being torn away from her child. It said a former enslaved Black man by the name of Henry Bibb, he was interviewed as part of a narrative. And he said later, as the child was torn from the arms of its mother amid the most heart-rending shrieks from the mother and child on the one hand and the bitter oaths and cruel lashes from tyrants on the other. The mother was sold to the highest bidder. And then it goes on to explain that enslaved mothers and fathers, these Black men and women, lived in constant fear that their children might be torn away from them at any moment. Black families lived in this emotional prison of slavery and this physical prison of slavery, knowing that their sisters could be sold the next day, their mother might be sold, you know, to a cruel master down the road or even deeper into Mississippi or Louisiana. This cruel institution of slavery was not only physically barbaric, it was emotionally barbaric. The people who constructed slavery wrote these false notions that these enslaved Black people had no feelings, like they they couldn't love, or they viewed them as not capable of human emotions, which I, as a researcher, many years later find, you know, it's just another layer of cruelty. 
these enslaved Black people lived in constant fear that their family would be torn away from them at any moment. One of the women who was a witness to a slave auction said in a 1930 interview, night and day you could hear men, women screaming, ma, pa, sister, brother, taken without any warning. And she said, and this, this quote just struck me, she said, people was always dying from a broken heart. And um, as I said, it's just a, an emotional, emotional stories that really rip at your very core, even hundreds of years later. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's chilling for me to listen to you quote those words. And yeah, even, even after I read those articles multiple times. And what sticks out to me is that I'm sure there were countless instances like that story that you mentioned of mothers being separated from their children at, at slave auctions and instances where those were not recorded because they weren't listed as, as crimes or people didn't take them seriously enough to report them. But what also has stayed with me is this idea that you mentioned about the families living in constant fear of being separated. And for a country that values the family unit so much in American society, nothing more holy than, than time with family, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable to me how the family unit was not valued, it was dehumanized when it came to slavery. And, and one thing that I would really appreciate hearing about more is what you wrote about in the last scene ads. And if you could speak to the legacy of slavery, even after emancipation and Juneteenth, how were families continued to be separated then? And, and was there a particular you know, last scene ad that really resonated with you or stuck out at you of, of what made that such a powerful humanizing story? Sure. So as part of my research as a reporter at the Washington Post, writing about history, writing about Black history, I came across a story about lost ads or what historians call last seen ads. And basically, well, this story was written in 2017. It explains that after the Civil War ended, hundreds and thousands of formerly enslaved Black people started placing ads, advertisements in newspapers across the country, explaining that they were looking for their loved ones who had been taken away from them during slavery. And I remember in my research, going back and reading the original ads and just, again, they were heart-wrenching. One of the ads that I wrote about placed by a woman named Elizabeth Williams who placed an ad in 1866 in the Christian Recorder newspaper in Philadelphia. And it began, the headline was information wanted by a mother concerning her children. She wrote in four column inches, the mother summed up her life, hoping the rich details would help her find her children. She listed their names, Lydia, William, Allen, and Parker, and explained in as, as many words as she could 
what happened, that they were formally owned together by a man she named as John Petty, who lived in Woodbury, Tennessee. And then in this ad, she explained that how her family was split apart when they were sold again and again, taken into captivity. And then she says, any information concerning them, however, will be gratefully received by one whose love for her children survives the bitterness and hardships of many long years spent in slavery. So that's what I wrote about. They're called last seen ads or lost ads that started appearing in newspapers around 1863 during the Civil War. And then many of them after the Civil War ends in 1865. And one of the experts on this told me that they were like real life tweets, right? So much of what we know of slavery or enslavement was written by white people or white historians. These are words captured of enslaved Black people. And in their own words, they're telling you of the horrors of slavery and the horrors of being separated from family members, separated from mothers. And the story I wrote in the ads, mothers look for their children Children look for their mothers. Fathers placed ads for lost sons. Sisters looked for sisters. Husbands sought their wives. Wives tried to find their husbands. The ad showed in real time the destruction slavery wrought on black families, tearing people apart and scattering generations like leaves in the winds. And then I explained that the ads often gave detailed physical descriptions of the missing people names. And you could see how these enslaved Black people just memorized as many details as they could about the faces of their children that were taken from them. They tried to, I'm even like beginning to cry now, I'm sorry, but they tried to explain like the seasons that they were taken from. You can tell that they they held on to these memories like witnesses to a crime, trying to memorize the faces of their children, memorizing the details of who took them away, memorizing the dialogue and the conversations of the people who ripped them from their arms. So the story is just, it's just one of the most heart-wrenching stories that I came across as a reporter. And as a mother myself, I think that's why I cried, because I can feel the pain even more than 200 years later of uh, people whose children were sold away from them. And I'm guessing that a lot of these last seen ads were never, you know, the families never ended up being able to be reunited. Is, is that is that your understanding as well? Well, most were not reunited. As you know, sometimes a baby might be ripped from her mother's arms during slavery. And then that baby might be sold from family to family to family and not knowing who her mother was. And her name might have been changed by those who presumed to own that child. So it was hard to reunite people. And a lot of people don't know that 
it was against the law for enslaved black people to, to read or to learn to read and write. I mean, that was another cruel function of slavery. So, you know, sometimes records were not kept well. Again, it was the reunification process is very much like, you know, what we see now happening on the border where these babies are taken from their parents and, you know, the babies can't say, this is my mom's first and last name and middle initial, and, and this is my address. Baby doesn't have that skill yet to say who his or her mother or father was. And the current situation at the border very much mimics a, a very similar pattern to what happened during slavery when these children are ripped from their parents and no records, careful records were kept about who their parents were. So I did write in my story, there were some success stories where families were reunited. Let's see whether I can find one here in my, my story as I scroll down. I wrote that sometimes the ads led to happy endings. And August 26, 1886, an ad ran in the Southwestern Christian Advocate newspaper, which by the way, did not charge for publishing letters from subscribers, but it said, I found my mother through the dear Southwestern newspaper. God bless you and your paper. It resurrects the forgotten, the lost can be found. So this ad was written by a woman named Alcee Boone who wrote a letter to the editor in 1886 saying that she actually found her mother after placing an ad in this newspaper. I mean, there are so many things that really struck me, especially what you mentioned about the connection between family separation as a result of slavery and family separation that's occurring today at the U.S.-Mexico border. But I do want to point out that you know, one, the role of the media and the newspapers in reconnecting these families when governments were not fulfilling that role. And the fact that you mentioned the importance of oral tradition in many Black American communities and how it's such a big part of the culture. But these last scene ads, for me, are just such a, such a clear and detailed fact about the horrors of the institution and especially in in ripping families apart. So, you know, that's what struck me as well. And just one more thing before I ask about, you know, how this fits into other instances of family separation in American history is that when you were sharing about the last scene ads and the stories, I was just thinking of my own grandfather who was separated from his older brother during the Korean War. You know, very different conflict very different circumstances, but he was telling me how he was posting ads and, and trying to find his older brother through the South Korean media, through the Korean broadcasting system. And unfortunately, he was never able to be reunited or found out what happened to him. But the, the parallel there really struck me of trying to remember everything you can about your loved one before you forget. And the trauma that causes babies and across generations. So I just wanted to thank you for for sharing that story because it really resonated with me. 
but would you be able to speak a little bit about you know that how this is recurring the family separation throughout US history and and the connections that you could make between family separation through slavery um and I know you've written about Native American residential schools and family separation at the US Mexico border but how does this all connect throughout American history so the way it connects throughout US history I have to say according to my reporting and according to the sources with whom I spoke and my reporting for these stories. The sources told me about the Trump administration's crackdown on families at the border where, you know, babies, some children younger than 18 months were separated from their parents. As their parents are sent to federal jails, you know, the babies are put into a system. And we now know that as many as 525 babies have been lost in the system. U.S. officials literally don't know where their parents are, which is harkens back to what I was talking about of the experience that enslaved Black people had during enslavement and afterwards. There's another piece of this history that many viewers or listeners don't know because, again, because of the way history is taught in the United States. But this issue of separating families is just rampant in U.S. history. From 1870 until literally the 1970s, uh, First Nations families were torn apart by this U.S. government. Many of the children, when I say First Nations, so many people call them Native Americans. And my reporting, both here in the United States and in Canada, they call themselves people, Inuit or Innu, or, which simply means people. So in Canada, they call themselves First Nations, and I'd like to use that term. So children of First Nations people were taken away as these governments, you know, both in the United States and Canada, you know, it also happened in Australia, came in to try to quote unquote, civilize these people who had lived on the land for thousands of years. As part of that so-called quote unquote, civilization process, they would rip the children away and send the children to residential schools far from their families at these residential schools, which were often run by cruel teachers and headmasters and headmistresses. Many of the children were whipped if they spoke their language. In many cases, their hair was cut, which was often against their traditional cultural uh, rules. They were made to wear so-called Western suits or Western dresses and placed in these educational institutions that taught them about, you know, Western history and tried to basically rip their culture or any memory of their people from them. So you, you might be able to <laughs> make a connection here between what happened to First Nations people and also what happened to enslaved Black people during slavery. You find 
government institutions trying to change people, trying to transform them, trying to take children away from their families as young as possible and indoctrinate them into these Western cultures. And what happens is um, you find that generations upon generations upon generations of both formerly enslaved Black people and First Nations people find generational trauma that has been documented. When I was a foreign correspondent in Canada for the Washington Post, I wrote a number of stories about the impact of residential schools on children, but also on their parents. And according to my reporting and research, some of the societal issues that First Nations people are experiencing today in terms of malnutrition, the suicide rate, the alcoholism rate is directly attributed to the separation of families. What researchers found is that when these children went away and they were indoctrinated, they did not learn while they, they were away at these resi residential schools, what it was like to be a parent. And so when the residential schooling ended and they were sent back to their communities and they you know, went on to have children themselves, they just had no education about what it was like to be a parent or to be parented because they had spent their childhood in these cruel institutions. So, Again, they suffered from these family separation policies implemented by the United States government, the Canadian government, the Australian government, and many people are still suffering from those really cruel policies of family separation. What you say about the generational trauma that the kind of family separation causes, that really hits home for me as well. And I think a lot of people don't think about the fact that this trauma and the pain of family separation is carried even beyond the immediate family members. I'm wondering if, you know, we've, uh, our conversation has spanned over 400 years from 1619, but I'm wondering if we could tie it to today in 2021, in March 2021, when we're recording this conversation. And I would appreciate your thoughts on the round of protests last summer in the wake of the killing of George Floyd for racial justice and against police brutality. And one of our earlier episodes was with somebody named E.J. Joseph, who was organizing protests and movements against police brutality. And I'm wondering if you see any common themes there in terms of organizing and action and linkages between slavery and family separation where we started this conversation? Wow. Okay. So that's a big question. <laughs> that's a really good question. I mean, the, the best way to answer that is we started this conversation where I'm talking about how this cruel institution of slavery was left out of textbooks. So what was the impact of that? The impact of both enslavement and then the miseducation of people after slavery ends is something that we're still feeling many generations later. I'd like to answer this question by explaining 
what slavery did to black people. In order to enslave black people in this country, what Europeans did was they tried to dehumanize them. Some people don't know that the constitution at one point described enslaved people as three fifths of a person. It was written into the constitution that enslaved people could be counted only as three fifths of a person. So three fifths any first grader knows is not whole, right? Five fifths is whole. So you have literally written into the constitution of the United States that enslaved people were not considered to be whole, were not considered to be human. And as a result, they tried to continue to dehumanize them with policies and laws that they used to help justify slavery. So let's fast forward to today. We look at the video of George Floyd lying on the street in Minneapolis, a black man. We watch in real time because a bystander is recording this. We watch George Floyd die under the knee of a police officer. We watch the police officer put his hands in his pocket and look around as though, you know, it was, he was just casually taking a walk as bystanders screamed for him to get off of George Floyd's neck. We watch the police officer press his knee on George Floyd's neck as George Floyd cries out, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. We watch the police officer continue to press his knee on George Floyd's neck as George Floyd is crying out, trying to make this man understand that he's human. He's talking about, I have a family, you know, man. Yeah, he cries out for his mother and his final moments. This video is eight minutes long. And then we see in real time, the life seep out of George Floyd's body and finally he's dead. So what we're seeing in that video is a black man lying under the knee of an oppressor who seems to not care for his life, who seems in that eight minute video to dehumanize the black man who's lying beneath his knee. We see in real time, the black man crying out what many black people in this country have been crying out for more than 400 years. We are human. See us as human. Stop oppressing us. Take your knee off our necks. And as a result of the oppression, as the result of the physical oppression on George Floyd's neck, George Floyd dies. And what happens after George Floyd dies in the summer of 2020, protest erupt. So again, even 400 years after the first enslaved Africans arrive on these shores, black people are still crying out to be recognized by the oppressor as human. And I just like to state that black people know that they're human, right? I often tell my students, when you cut me, I bleed. And this is a very important point that I'd like to make here. 
race, this whole idea of race is a fallacy. It's a social construct. Literally, all people are part of one race, the human race. And if you do your research, you'll find that all people are African. All people are descendants of Africa. And scientists have found that up until 8,000 years ago, we all had dark skin. And then as people migrated to different climates, their genes mutated. But literally, we are all descendants of Africans. And what governments and historians and scientists have tried to do is draw dividing lines amongst us to separate us by the quote unquote notion of race. Race is a fallacy, but what's interesting, racism is very real. So I guess in summary, answering your question, what happened with George Floyd was a continuation of oppressed people crying out to the oppressor to recognize their very humanity. I can't think of a better way to close. And the last thing that I would want to ask is for listeners and for myself too, is do you have any suggestions, any advice for what people who are listening could do to humanize the society and to do something about this issue or at the very least start to educate themselves further? Could you point us to anything that you're working on? Because this conversation has spanned 400 years, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the depth and breadth of stories. There are some really great books you can start with. There's a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, and it's written by Ibrahim Kendi. Again, the title is How to Be an Anti-Racist. And it explains that to be an anti-racist means to actively engage in fighting against racism and fighting against oppression actively, not passively. So that's a great book. You help to change a society, you know, one person at a time, actively trying to defeat a system of racism. So the book is great at explaining what you can do as individuals and then also collectively help, you know, help your fellow man, help your fellow human fight against this ugly institution of racism. And then there's another book that just came out by Isabel Wilkerson. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. She's the first Black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for journalism. She wrote a book called The Warmth of Other Sons, which was about the Great Migration. That was her first book. And then her second book, it's called Cast. And she explains, again, that this notion of race is a social construct and goes about laying out the argument that really what we're suffering from is a caste system that tries to separate us by our skin color. That's a great book. You know, I tell my students to to research racism constantly, to read constantly, to watch movies, to go to museums, you know, when we're out of this pandemic, to travel, to seek out other people from other cultures, 
to educate themselves about racism as though they were seeking water in a desert. So this means that it becomes your priority. It becomes something you seek to understand as though your very life depended on it because your life and the life of others does depend on people like moving beyond their comfort zones, moving beyond you know the debates or the internal conversations that happen in people's heads and really seeking to change the world and defeat racism. So you can take a look at the documentary I'm working on, the trailers have come out on Red Summer, which talks about the Red Summer, the period of racial terror that happened in this country from like 1917 until 1923 when hundreds of black people were killed in lynchings and massacres. That documentary will be released in June. And then there's another documentary I've been working on for PBS, which focuses on Tulsa, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. So those are two things that I'm working on now. Yeah, we will definitely include the links to those resources as well as the trailers to the two documentaries. I've seen the one for uh, Red Summer, I believe, but I'm really looking forward to watching the entire films. Um, But just before I stop the recording, is there anything else, Professor Brown, that you would want to mention? No, I think this was really a comprehensive interview. (laughs) I think, I mean, you asked really great questions and I think you caught me on a day when I'm talkative because I'm normally not very talkative. I'm, (laughs) as a writer, I like to sit in my corner and just write. And it has been a pleasure to spend this time with you talking about issues that are near and dear to my heart. And I enjoyed our conversation as heart-wrenching as it was. And I'm just hoping that listeners out there might be moved in a way to uh, do something about racism and also to do something about family separation. much for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time